0: Welcome to this week's episode of the Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stat. I'm Allison DeAngelis.
1: I'm Adam Forestine, and I'm Damien Garnet.
0: It's Thursday, September 29th. And here's what we're going to talk about this week.
2: The latest Alzheimer's disease treatment from partners Biogen and Eisai succeeded in a pivotal clinical trial, a surprising development
1: with sweeping implications. We dig into the news. Then, oncologist Mikhail Sekaris joins us to talk about his new book, A History of the FDA and an Insider's Look at One of the Agency's Most Contentious Drug Approval Hearings.
0: But first, a word from our sponsor.
2: Hi, I'm Angus Macaulay. thanks for listening. You've probably heard of the mRNA technology that has been used to make vaccines for COVID-19. But did you know that there are breakthroughs on the horizon to put mRNA to work against a host of other diseases? Tracy Humphreys, a scientist and marketer from Citiva, is here to tell us more.
1: Thanks, Angus. mRNA is showing tremendous potential to cure diseases like autoimmune and neurological disorders and even deadly pancreatic cancers. Visit cytiva.com forward slash advanced therapeutics to learn how we're working with biopharma companies to adjust their manufacturing strategies and bring this exciting technology to patients. That's cytiva, cytiva.com forward slash advanced therapeutics.
2: So, Damien, I feel like Alzheimer's disease just keeps pulling us back in. We're we writing about it again and again and again. And this week, yes, you and I have spent a lot of time on Alzheimer's. Uh, why don't you give us a quick summary of the news?
1: Right. Yeah, every week is like Godfather 3. Um, the news this week is that the latest treatment from Biogen and ASI called Lecanemab succeeded in a pivotal clinical trial. The headline number there is that it reduced the decline... Uh, of patients with Alzheimer's disease by 27% relative to placebo, which was enough to meet its primary endpoint. It also met its secondary endpoints as well. This is a case, as is so often the case, of data by press release. We got a press release from these two companies that has some more information in addition to what I just described, but not much more. And so it leaves everyone parsing what little data is in there, but also with, I think, honestly, a little bit of shock that this happened. We've talked about this trial a few times on this podcast. We've written about it, I don't know how many times. And I think having spoken to neurologists, analysts who who follow Biogen and ASI, the expectations for this study were low. It would not have been surprising, I don't think whatsoever, had it failed. And I think people were generally prepared for because it was such a large study and it was so uh, overpowered to detect even a small difference. They were prepared for the companies to perhaps declare a success that on examination looked more marginal than anything else. But that 27% um, and the p-value associated with it, I think a lot of people were kind of taken aback.
2: Yeah, Damien, you mentioned the fact that again, the lecanemab. This is a this is a drug like many others before it that uh, it targets these toxic brain plaques called amyloid. Uh, the theory being that removing those brain plaques, those toxic brain plaques uh, from from people in, in the brain would slow the pace of Alzheimer's. Um, by, you know, by, by, you know, slowing the pace of memory loss and delaying the onset of dementia. But, you know, these drugs have not worked. And, and here, you know, this study is called Clarity AD. It, it, it enrolled about 1,800 participants. It was actually the largest study conducted to date to test the, this amyloid hypothesis. And again, yeah, I mean, you know, low expectations because people were looking kind of back and, and history of all these failures. And, and here's a study that, that worked um, obviously, the debate that has um, kind of raged since uh, the data were released has been about clinical meaningfulness, i.e. the treatment effect of leucatumab and whether or not this is really going to matter to patients.
0: Yeah, wait, can you guys dig into that a little bit more? Because, you know, Adam, as you referenced, that's that's what everybody has been Debating what is meaningful. I mean, like this this sort of number from the what was it CDRSB um, assessment. What does that mean? What does that reduction actually like detail? And like, what are kind of the comparison points that we have?
2: D- Damien has become an expert in the CDR <laughs> sum of boxes. I think he has like a PhD in this in this uh, measure of efficacy for Alzheimer's drugs.
1: Well, the nice thing uh, in my PhD program, um, <laughs> He's talking Damien. to people who are experts in this, who truly have spent time. And, you know, the the headline tends to be, oh, boy. So so maybe digging into the CDRSB, or the Clinical Dementia Rating Sum of Boxes, is a way of determining or be, a way of measuring through questionnaire done by a physician and, and by a patient, basically how where on the scale of perfectly cognitively healthy to having severe dementia a given patient is and it goes from 0 to 18 with 0 being uh, the perfectly cognitively healthy and 18 being you know the most severe dementia um, imaginable so the headline for lecanemab is that it the difference between lecanemab and placebo after 18 months of either getting the drug or not getting the drug is those who were on it did 0. 0.45 points better uh, on the CDRSB than those who got placebo. So one reading of that is that on an 18 point scale, less than half a point that's a rounding error. It is important to remember though this is not a scale where, you know, one point is equivalent to another point at any point on the scale, which is to say, the difference between a 1 on the CDRSB and a 2 on the CDRSB can be for a patient's life massive. That could be the difference of being able to drive by oneself or not being able to remember Key shopping lists, um, names occasionally, whereas the difference between, let's say, 14 on the scale and 15 on the scale is likely almost imperceptible in real life because you have already advanced to such severe dementia. And so that gets, I think, to the crux of your question, Allison, is so so then what does 0.45 mean? And there are a lot of conflicting... Opinions on that. There was a, a pretty rigorous study um, published in 2019 looking at data from upwards of 30,000 patients with various stages of Alzheimer's and basically asking clinicians what is the minimum difference in a CDRSB score that you would define as like a noticeable worsening of somebody's Alzheimer's between uh, visits to the physician. And depending on the stage of Alzheimer's disease, um, so for early stages, like what this drug would be for, the number tended to go from about 0.98 to about 1.6. So again, much much larger than the 0.45 here. But also in that same study, about 70% of cases, um, people said that the minimum, the absolute minimum change in CDRSP that they would define as clinically meaningful um, in these visits was 0.5. So n- from that perspective, you're looking Lakanimev is perhaps in the ballpark. Now, I mean, you know, we've spoken to physicians even just about this data, and I think people were cautiously optimistic. They would say it's unassailably positive, but that this clinical benefit observed in this study is probably on the cusp of what you would call minimally clinically meaningful. Um, But then, of course, zooming out, as Adam mentioned, this is in the context of 20 years of failure, For these kinds of medicines. And so I think anybody considering this, you kind of have to hold those two thoughts in your head at the same time, which is that experts say this is toward the minimum of what you would consider positive, but history tells us that everything else has failed. So this still remains, at least as far as we know, good news.
2: Yeah. And I think on the, you know, there are patients and patient advocates and even, you know, some physicians and experts in Alzheimer's who look at these numbers and say that, you know, given this patient population, you know, a very, you know, essentially a very early stage Alzheimer's, that a a treatment effect of, you know, 0.45 points is meaningful, that that delaying, you know, again, you know, and we have to be clear, right? This is not a cure for Alzheimer's. These patients are not getting better. We're not, they're not improving cognition or, you know, this is really about slowing the decline of the disease, but that that in itself is a meaningful—that's uh, a meaningful benefit for patients, and so you know that's the debate that goes on. And I, and I guess the other thing I would say is you know it, it is hard to have this discussion now um, because all we do have is this press release with very limited data now. Uh, Isai and Biogen are going to be presenting a lot more data from this study uh, at an Alzheimer's meeting that uh, is taking place at the end of November, so we don't have to wait too long. And I think we will see more data there. Um, you know, interestingly, we'll, you know, they, they have measured uh, cognition, and they've measured memory and function and, and all other kind of things. They've measured those using some other other tools, other assays that, um, that we haven't seen. We don't know what those look like. So I think that will give us a much... Uh, you know, a, a much clearer picture, much more well-defined picture of what this drug is doing.
0: Yeah, kind of talking about that bigger picture, you know, more in-depth picture. I mean, didn't Eli Lilly's drug, uh, Dananimab, which everybody is still like looking to see, we're going to be getting new data on that. You know, everybody's kind of watching that drug too. That, I believe, failed the, the CDR SB endpoint in the clinical data that came out, I think at least last year. Um, now, like when we're talking about like, you know, <laughs> licanumab, denanumab, you know, even what was then aducanumab, now aduhelm, it feels like there is so much, you know, fuzziness around this field right now. Like we have this like weird elephant in the room from aduhelm Like it is, it does feel like this convert, like we can't talk about Lacanamab without talking about Adjahelm at this point. I'm kind of curious, like what, like in the days, you know, since this Lacanamab data came out, like what you guys have been like seeing and hearing about, you know, the influence, if at all, from this precedent set by Adjahelm.
1: Yeah, it's inescapable. I mean, to your point about the fuzziness, I I guess for starters, it it is important for people to consider that like... The CDRSB, which, as we mentioned, is, is based on a questionnaire. Um, some of the other measures, there's one called ADCOMS, which Eli Lilly used and, and which Denanimab um, showed us a significant benefit on, is similarly a questionnaire. These are not what scientists would call hard endpoints. We get kind of spoiled talking about oncology, where you can measure, did the tumor grow? Is the patient alive? These are, these are very basic, kind of unassailable metrics for determining whether a given drug is working. In Alzheimer's, we just don't have that. So there are a multitude of issues with the CDRSB that that neurologists often acknowledge, but there is also the resignation that it is what we have. I don't know if it's the best thing per se, but maybe most importantly, practically, it is the one the FDA has accepted as a sign that a drug is working. So that's important. And then, you know, to Aduhelm, you're right that it, it hangs over all of this, not just because the inventors of the Canemab are the inventors of Aduhelm, the people who tried and failed to turn it into a commercial success after surprisingly turning it into a regulatory success and winning approval last year. And as a result of the path that Adjuhelm set and the roadblocks that were erected to stop it, um, that kind of sets the rubric for Lacanemap. So Adjuhelm, is, as people know, one approval on an accelerated basis, which we're going to talk about at length a little later in this episode, um, based on its ability to reduce those amyloid plaques, and then it was rendered a commercial non-entity because the agency that controls Medicare basically said we're not going to pay for this outside of clinical trials because we don't buy the evidence that has th- that got it approval. So, cutting to lecanemab. Which is up for an accelerated approval in January based on its ability to reduce those amyloid plaques. And based on what we know, based on the precedent of Adjuhelm, one would assume it will win that approval. But similarly, based on the uh, precedent of Adjuhelm, one will assume that will mean nothing commercially because of those roadblocks that still exist. So these data that we're discussing now, that we only have the press release on, the phase three, these will go to the FDA to win a full approval where the label would say this drug actually slows cognitive decline with Alzheimer's, and these data will go to Medicare, where Biogen and ASI will ask them to change their policy for this drug, to allow uh, a wider reimbursement of it. And so all of that is a process that really probably won't kick off in earnest until the summer. So basically, to your point, Adjuhelm hangs over all of this, and the challenge is for Biogen to succeed where it previously failed, for the FDA to perhaps handle this in a way that doesn't incur the kind of wrath that they experienced in 2021. And then finally, for Medicare to make what will be an incredibly weighty decision about what the commercial future of this drug will be in the United States.
0: This also, I can't help but think about the fact that, like, this time last year, we were also experiencing, like, even before CMS had made its draft decision on you know drugs that that target amyloid plaques. Um clinicians were not happy with Agihelm and the process of commercializing that drug. And we were actually seeing clinicians like put up signs on their clinic door saying if you are a sales rep for this drug, do you are not welcome here. I, I wonder, and we'll probably see this play out over you know the next you know year or two, like the medical community, how they're going to respond to a drug like this. It feels like part of that question we will get a better sense of when this data is kind of fully presented in November, right?
2: We I mean yeah. I mean again, with all the caveats that, you know, we don't we don't have a full picture of what the looks like from an efficacy or a safety standpoint. We will have that soon. But my sense is, and I don't know, I Damien, mean, I don't know how you, you feel like this. I mean, we've talked to a lot of physicians, obviously, and even skeptical ones. Uh, you know, we, we talked to, to one expert who, you know, who said this drug is going to get approved. And I do suspect that uh, if this drug sh- shows itself to be more efficacious than than Adjuhelm, uh, safer, you know, so sort of particularly when it comes to the, the the primary side effect, you know, which is the brain swelling called ARIA, that we see or brain bleeds if we if we see less of that uh, and 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 it does look like it, it is safer than than add your home, that i think you know the drug will probably get used you know you get the sense that that the drug will probably um be more people will be more receptive to
1: this yeah absolutely and you know looking forward to that november 29th presentation i mean there's so many unanswered questions but i think one of the big ones fixating on that point 45 is the context for it. So, what we know is ASI has said that lecanemab separated from placebo as early as six months, and that it was, you know, po- the difference was 0. 0.45 on the CDRSB at 18 months, the extent of the trial. But what we don't yet know is what the shape of those curves is. And the reason that's important is that if they're widening, then that would suggest that were the study to have gone on for two years, three years, five years, that the benefit, the perceived benefit of lakanumab would look even greater. Thus, you know, supporting the notion because probably patients would be taking this drug for quite a a long time once they were prescribed it. That would support the idea that this 0.45 is just the beginning of the benefit and it would make the drug seem very valuable. Conversely, if it plateaus or rather if the greatest difference between lecanemab and placebo is at one year and then it actually narrows to 18 months to reach that 0.45 that would be a different value proposition altogether it would suggest that you know the benefits of this drug kind of wear off in time relative to placebo which i think will be vitally important and then there's you know just a litany of kind of in the weeds scientific questions that that still exist for this drug but i think you know wh- while this press release is unassailably a victory for these companies, we have seen, I mean, wh- one of the benefits, maybe the wrong word, but one of the lessons of 20 years of failure of Alzheimer's drugs is we have seen the many ways that statistics can snatch success um, out of the jaws of failure. I don't remember how that phrase actually goes. But I guess my point is there are many open questions about Lecanemab heading into November.
2: And, and Damien, you and I uh, obviously have chronicled the twists, the turns, the ups and downs of Biogen. Uh, our podcast listeners know this well. Um, and so this is another
1: kind of plot twist uh, in that in that saga for Biogen, isn't it? Truly. And, and one I think a lot of people didn't see coming. I mean, the, the Adjuhelm disaster basically led to a clearing out of Biogen's executive ranks, beginning with their chief scientist, Al Sandrock, and Um, finally with the CEO, Michel Vinazos, who is expected to step down in the coming months um, when the company names his successor. And, you know, a lot of that was seen as something that was necessary after the disastrous rollout that was at you home. So then for the kind of second swing at amyloid to apparently be a success, and if everything goes the way it appears to be going, Biogen will reap billions of dollars in revenue from this drug once it's approved. I, I just, I think a lot of people didn't see that coming. It doesn't change the trajectory that the company is on with respect to finding a new CEO, but I think it does change. I mean, it clearly changes what the job will be for that next person, to, uh, to lead Biogen because it went from what would have been a real like top-to-bottom turnaround to something of a turnaround, but also with the padding of what will likely be a blockbuster drug but also the challenge of marketing it, of succeeding where these two companies very recently failed and convincing CMS and those neurologists and basically the entire relevant community to give them another chance.
2: Yeah, you know, you and I wrote a story, a second day story on this. Uh, it was posted today, just kind of looking at some of these burning questions about the canamava uh, We wrote that with our colleague uh, Rachel Kors, and you know, and talking about this in, in the context of Biogen and its search for a CEO. You know, I, I think what's interesting, like you know, this is a second bite at this really lucrative uh, treatment market in Alzheimer's that that Biogen gets to gets to. Uh, gets to do and uh you know it really it might just kind of obviate the need right for a total overhaul of their r&d operations their business pro- their business priorities um you know and and we got to say like you know look they, we know that biogen has been widely criticized right for you know kind of sticking stubbornly to to alzheimers when you know when when basically everything went everything went bad um but you know if lucanamab Turns out to be a really effective and safe drug, and and widely used and a commercial success. Then, then you know that the I don't know if it's the final chapter, but it's a chapter in the saga where we you know we would conclude that you know they were right all along. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration is among the most trusted regulatory agencies in the world, but that has not insulated the FDA from controversy, criticism, or second-guessing over its handling of drug approvals in recent years.
0: Yeah, from Alzheimer's disease treatments to accelerated approvals of cancer drugs and emergency authorizations of COVID vaccines, everyone seems to have an opinion about the way the FDA reviews the safety and efficacy of new medicines.
1: Our guest this week is Dr. Mikhail Sekharis, who has written a new book that is both a history of the FDA and also an insider's account of the contentious fight between the agency and Genentech over the breast cancer drug Avastin. The Avastin hearings in 2011, much like more recent skirmishes over aduhelm or hydroxychloroquine, tested the FDA's system of checks and balances, and not always to everyone's satisfaction. Mikel is an oncologist, professor of medicine, and chief of the Division of Hematology at the
2: Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Miami. He's also a former member and chair of the FDA's Cancer Drug Advisory Committee. His new book is titled Drugs and the FDA, Safety, Efficacy, and the Public's Trust. Mikel, welcome to
3: The Read Out Loud. What a privilege it is to be here with all of you. So for starters, what
1: motivated you to write this book about the FDA, and then why now?
3: You know, I've been thinking about writing this ever since the 2011 hearings. Uh, they were indeed contentious and I left them with a unsettled feeling in, in, in my, my stomach. And I kept reflecting on whether one question and that question is, were the Avastin hearings the ultimate demonstration of how well the FDA works or in how well it doesn't work? And I've been noodling about this for a few years. And then more recently, as you mentioned, there were a couple of events that occurred. One was uh, the outbreak of COVID and the FDA's um, approach to approving vaccines. Uh, The other has been a juggernaut of accelerated approvals of cancer medicines over the past five to seven years. Now some of these represent wonderful opportunities for patients to have access to drugs sooner than they would ordinarily through the regular approval mechanism but on the other hand some drugs were approved uh, approved on um studies that enrolled a limited number of patients. And as practitioners, we're stuck in a quandary of whether or not to use these drugs based on data that isn't necessarily the ultimate clinically meaningful endpoint, such as overall survival. So I think it's a combination of things of something that just never completely sat right with me over the past decade and more recent events.
0: Before we get into some of those more recent events, uh, can you take us back to, you know, 2011 for our readers who or listeners who might not have been following biotech uh, back in those days and explain what was so contentious about the Avastin hearings between the FDA and what was your role in it?
3: Oh, gee, that's a great question. So Avastin, um, uh, is, uh, one of these, uh, vascular endothelial growth factor drugs, um, that was born out of uh, work from a number of labs, but most notably Judah Folkman, right? So it was kind of all the rage to think about these drugs and their potential in cancer in the late 1990s and the 2000s. And it was approved in a trial in which <clears throat> women were randomized to receive Avastin plus Taxol or, um, Uh, tax all alone uh, for advanced breast cancer under the E2100 study. And in that study, women who received the combination had an improved progression-free survival of about six months uh, over women who didn't get the Avastin drug. Uh, So that was good enough to earn the drug accelerated approval. Now, one of the critical aspects of accelerated approval is that once a drug makes to the market, a confirmatory study has to be conducted that at the very minimum confirms the initial magnitude of benefit that was seen for accelerated approval and hopefully extends that to an improvement in overall survival. So actually in this case, two studies were conducted in which women were randomized to regimens that included Avastin versus not including Avastin for metastatic breast cancer. And unfortunately, those studies fell flat. Um, Not only did they not demonstrate the initial progression-free survival advantage for women getting a Avastin of about six months, but actually shortened it to just a few weeks, there was no overall survival advantage. And in one of those studies, there was actually a hint that overall survival was worse for women getting Avastin. This led to an ODAC meeting in which I participated in which FDA asked us, should basically should Avastin remain on the market? Does the relative balance of safety and efficacy warrant leaving this drug on the market? And we voted no, it, it doesn't. The FDA, of course, informed the manufacturer of that finding and invited them to voluntarily withdraw the drug from the market. And for the first time, a company said, no, um, we're not going to withdraw it from the market. We're going to demand our day in court. So the Avastin hearings were essentially their day in court where the lawyers for Genentech slash Roche faced off against the lawyers for the FDA. And I was part of a panel of six who essentially were acting the role of jurors uh, to decide whether or not the drug should be removed from the market.
1: So beyond the discussion of safety and efficacy, these hearings were contentious in large part because the room was packed with breast cancer patients and advocates, nearly all of whom were vocally supportive of Genentech and demanding that the FDA keep Avastin uh, on the market, as you described. So you write in the book about the FDA providing security and experiencing firsthand some hostile encounters with attendees of the meeting. What was that experience like for
3: you? Well, to be honest, it was frightening. Um, and it was right out of a movie set. Uh, ordinarily, you will be pleased to know that as a taxpayer, um, when we stay at a hotel the night before an ODAC meeting, it is not the fanciest hotel in the world. So we stayed at our little <laughs> hotel outside of Rockville, Maryland, and we're picked up by a shuttle and we're taken to FDA headquarters. That morning, as we're going past FDA, there are crowds of protesters um, very loudly and obviously in favor of keeping vast on the market. We're taken past the main doors that we ordinarily walk through, through a back entrance. So we already knew something was up. You have to go through security to get into FDA, including metal detectors. And, uh, then we, we went through this circumlocutus path to finally get to the great room, which is where the event, where, where any kind of ODAC deliberation occurs. At least they did when it was in person as opposed to virtual. We um, walked into that area and uh, opened the doors to get into the great room. And it was just simply pandemonium. It was louder than I had ever seen it. And the great room, which, you know, typically I've o- always seen no more than about half full, was bursting at the seams with people bringing in more chairs and a scrum of uh, cameramen from national news seated around the table where we would be sitting. So um, it was very loud, very boisterous. Um, people spoke up when they um, weren't called on, which is, you know, breaking protocol at a at a government hearing. And then at the end, when we rendered our decision, uh, as soon as we were done, armed security rushed towards us to whisk us away out of back entrance of the FDA, where there was literally a waiting motor running tinted window limousine to take us away to the airport. So um, it was very contentious. We knew it would be. Uh, this is an emotional topic, uh, and and I think we treated it emotionally as well. We were swept up in it, also particularly in the incredible testimonies from the brave women who stepped up and um, testified on behalf of the drug.
0: I was just rewatching an old West Wing episode where the president was shot at, and it feels like very similar (laughs) experiences of the secret security, some sort of service whisking you away. That's not often what I think we associate with the FDA these days.
3: Yeah, it it can get emotional. It's emotional because we're talking about drugs that are treating life-threatening conditions.
2: You know, Mikhail, the publication of your book is is really well timed because controversies over the FDA's doling out of accelerated drug approvals, you know, based on preliminary evidence you know, and what to do if those drugs don't end up benefiting patients you know, has really intensified. Um, you know, what's your thoughts on the current system of FDA's checks and balances at, you know, as you describe them in the book? Uh, you know, Is it working? Um, are there improvements that could be made? What's your, what's your thoughts about kind of the way the FDA is handling accelerated approvals these days?
3: I am personally a fan of accelerated approval. Um, I think the way that the legislation is written from the original Padufa law in 1992, and that is renewed every five years, um, got it right. And it was born out of activism on behalf of patients with HIV and AIDS, uh, really mainly driven from groups like ACT UP. So its birth was in the right place. Its cause was in the right place. These are desperately ill people who have very few options to treating their illness. Um, it very quickly over the next decade transformed into be a mechanism that mainly fed oncology drugs. Now, it, cancer is obviously a diagnosis where it's not exactly a, a difficult um, argument to make that it is life-threatening for a lot of people. So people need drugs desperately. We need a mechanism to get them those drugs quicker than they would through regular approval. And it has the right checks and balances in that If a drug is ultimately shown to not have the right balance of safety and efficacy, it can be pulled from the market. I think where the FDA has opportunities is the same place where the CDC has just acknowledged that it's had opportunities uh, with its messaging around COVID. And that is that their communication hasn't been clear to the general public. I think if the general public recognize that this drug is approved with a big fat asterisk that says, okay, we're letting you use it now, but wait, there's more data coming out that may cause us to change our minds. And people were ready for the fact that drugs could be pulled from the market. I think accelerated approval would be much more successful.
0: Mm. You, you write about the origins of the FDA in the early 1900s and how, you know, a series of Public health crises, like you just referenced, you know the the AIDS epidemic, um, and and really tragic, you know, health events in our country strengthened the agency's regulatory role, mostly by ensuring the safety and the efficacy of medicines. How important is the public trust in the FDA's mission, and and how do you think that the FDA has been doing in more recent years maintaining that public trust?
3: I think the trust of the public that the FDA is getting it right is absolutely critical. And I will tell you that as, you know, you could almost call this an insider outsider book, right? I certainly had some insider um, experience working with FDA uh, on aspects of regulatory approval. And um, my meeting with FDA team members, I have the highest respect for them. They really, really, really want to get it right. And getting it right might mean approving a drug quickly for people who desperately need it, and getting it right might be protecting the health of the public and not approving a drug. Uh, And they really want to be absolutely accurate with that. There's a lot of stuff they've got to balance in doing that uh, with uh, all the the data coming from trials about safety and efficacy. Uh, I think that where the FDA has fallen short is that they are are widely viewed as being opaque. And it's... uh, and that the public finds it hard to interpret how they make decisions. Now, that being said, it is the most open regulatory body probably in the world because all of these proceedings are public, right? So people can tune in if they want, but I think their communication about this can be improved to enhance the trust of the public.
2: So, Mikhail, uh, uh, Rick Pastor, who's the FDA's top uh cancer drug regu- regulator um, plays a big part in in your book, and obviously he was pivotal to the Zivastin hearings. So I wonder, ha- have you shared uh, the book or your thoughts about the book to with him? And what has Rick
3: said? I have not shared them directly with Rick. I would be intrigued to hear what Rick says. Um, I have the ultimate respect for Rick, and and I actually say that in the book. I'd love to know what he thinks of the book and what the rest of the FTA thinks of the book. They are aware of it. Um, I uh, recently participated as a special government employee in a couple of ODAC meetings. And um, one of the uh, conflict of interest screening questions I had to answer was about the fact that they knew I had just written a book and I had to answer some questions about that.
1: Once again, Mikkel's book is titled Drugs and the FDA, Safety, Efficacy, and the Public Trust. It's available now for sale online and in stores. Mikkel, congrats on the book. It is a great read. And thank you so much for stopping by the podcast to talk about it.
3: My word, what a pleasure it was. Thank you for inviting me.
1: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel.
2: And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and your thoughts about the Canamab. You can do all that
1: by sending us an email at readoutloud@statnews.com. at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts.
0: We'll see you next week.